0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. If you're a Malaysian, you've probably heard of Sang Kanchil and the many stories about the little mouse deer, such as Hikayat Sang Kanchil or even Sang Kanchil Dengan Buaya. Recently, James Chai, who's a columnist at Malaysia Kini, he's the visiting fellow at the ICS Yusuf Ishak Institute. He's also been a guest on BFM on numerous occasions. He has wrote a book also on Sang Kanchil, but no, it's not quite about the mouse deer per se. The book is called Sang Kanchil, A Tale About How Ordinary Malaysians Defy the Odds. James Chai joins me on the show today to talk about his new book. Welcome to the show, James. How are you?
1: I'm good, Nishun. So nice to be here.
0: So tell me a bit about yourself uh, because you've come on the show, uh, you've come on BFM many, many times over the years, but we don't really talk about you. Uh, We always talk about a particular topic. So tell me a little bit about yourself and then what inspired you to write this book.
1: Yeah, so if you've heard my voice on air before on BFM, uh, I've commented a lot on politics in the past. Mm -hmm. If you've seen my name, uh, on Malaysia Kini, it's because I've written quite a lot on Malaysia in the past as well. So you could either see me, I, I think, uh, as a, you agree with my hopefulness uh, and what <laughs> gives spirit to the country. Or you could think that, you know, I'm quite naive with a <laughs> sense of romanticism um, of the country. And this, this time, I've written a book really to um, exemplify that, that more hopeful part of me But, you know, in in terms of like what inspired me to write this book, Mm -hmm. I I think it's driven a lot by fear. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Daphne, you're also a millennial, we're roughly the same age. Um, But I really think that Malaysian millennials will probably be one of the most disillusioned generation of our time. Mm -hmm. Because it is only this group that has lived through a period of time where in your entire life, you're told that change is impossible. And your political awakening happened at a time that you want to achieve a simple aim of achieving a a once-in-a-generation change where the cards are stacked against you. And in the end, you achieve it. And there's this absolute euphoria about what you think is possible in life. And then quickly after that, it was taken away from you. (laughs) And you are put into this hard-to-explain pandemic, which I think is why out-migration of uh, Malaysian millennials is very high in the recent years. Political activism has also gone down compared to the previous decades because there is a risk, I think, that this disillusionment will become cynicism. Mm. And I remember myself having gone through it, the only wish that I had, which is quite similar to a lot of others, which is you wish that there was someone to come save us for this, from this situation so that we can be hopeful again. Right right? And I think I've read this one quote at this art museum one time. Uh, It, it was a painting, and it, it said that there comes a point in everyone's life that you realize that there are no superheroes coming to save you. And that's why I wrote this book, because I, I needed to find reasons to believe. So I wrote this almost like a primer for hope. And the central argument is that society is shaped not by larger-than-life, charismatic leaders who would sweep everything in one go, but by ordinary people. They are driven by very ordinary traits of kindness, courage, as well as common decency.
0: I think... You really hit the nail on the head there in terms of the kind of um, feeling most millennials are feeling right now. And I'm, I'm and I'm exactly you know I'm I think I'm the exact same age as you, mm. nineteen ninety three. Um, mm. You know that same kind of uh, disillusionment you hear from a lot of um, friends because I think many of us um, the first time we voted, change happened. Um, you know, if you voted in, in the if the first time you voted was the 2018 elections and then we saw how little we actually changed um, a, as well. And I think that has contributed to a lot of this um, feeling of disillusionment, confusion, um, this longing for hope, which I think your book really gives um, this, this feeling of hope and inspiration. How long did you work on this book and what was the experience like?
1: I started working on it since at the start of 2022 and I gave myself three months. <laughs> that's that's all the time that I think I'm going to spend actually working on something like that. But of course, you know, it, it took me much longer than that. And then publication <laughs> took some time as well. You know, at that time, I was under this misguided belief that if I've written columns, there are 800 words, I've written research papers, that are 6,000 words. How difficult can ri- be writing a book uh, be, especially... <laughs> if I've done so much writing, wouldn't a book just be almost writing 10 uh, long-form articles or something like that, right? right? But I really think that was misguided because what a book is fundamentally is that you're trying to prove a central argument through many angles throughout the book. And I think for me, looking back, of course, the best part of working on something like that is when I've done interviews with um, the subjects of the book, as well as people who know the subjects. Um, this was my favorite part, because you get to discover the stories behind the stories that you, are, um, you, that, that you know in the mm-hmm. past. And when the subjects could open up, feel comfortable enough to open up their fears, dreams, um, their trials, and their tragedy, uh, that I remember constantly gave me goosebumps and I told myself that you know no matter how nerve-wracking this whole process is when a book comes out I needed to actually publish it because it's not really about me Mm. it's about what we can say through these subjects who have lived quite uh, incredible lives but of course from the outlook uh from the outside sorry uh, it looks like they are painfully ordinary individuals uh, who are put into circumstances larger than themselves
0: so let's talk about your book, starting with the title. Why Sang Kan Chil? I needed
1: to find a central archetype mm-hmm. that Malaysians could relate with, that is timeless, and some something that makes perfect sense to what I was trying to say. And Sang kan Chil's story, no matter how many times you tell it through different variations of Sang kan Chil and the crocodile, the tiger... Um, and various other um, animals that Sang Kancho had to battle with. Mm-hmm. It is fundamentally a story of underdogs. And different parts of the world have different variations of underdog stories. And if you deep dive, particularly to um, Sang Kancho, you would realize that it is the smallest deer in the world. Um, very, very hard to realize its presence in a jungle whereby physical strength and physical size. Is the advantage. There's also a certain mystique as well as rarity of it. Uh, until today, uh, if anyone has a sighting of Sankanchil or the mouse deer in the jungle, they still find it um, an exhilarating experience because they rarely actually appear. Hmm. And I wanted to take Sankanchil because I know that all of these stories that we tell ourselves through generations to generations there are cultural artifacts that live in our consciousness, right? And I think, you know, it was so powerful that it became our founding story, the origin story of Malacca that started what was eventually Malaysia. And I think, therefore, in a story where I want to bring forth ordinary people, who are in underdog situations, battling giants. Uh, I thought Sankajio made perfect sense and I could bring forth a modern version of it uh, through the lives of um, ordinary Malaysians.
0: James, out of curiosity, um, you know, when we look at many political books, philosophical books, so on and so forth, um, even sometimes in fiction, right, the um, author sometimes um, starts the book um, before the first chapter and all of that with with a quote, right? Um, And here you quote Marianne Williamson. Um, Did you find it to be a fitting quote for a story that you're trying to tell? Or does she in particular inspire you? Just out of curiosity.
1: Yeah. So the quote was, uh, our deepest fears is not that we are inadequate. Uh, our deepest fears is that we are powerful beyond measure. Mm-hmm. Right. So Marianne Williamson was, she, she's quite well known as mm-hmm. a spiritual advisor. And I think, uh, you know, Oprah Winfrey loves her. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I quite like, uh, that, that whole, you know, mindfulness, uh, that portion, uh, of it as well. I, I like what she says. But of course, you know, um, eventually she became like this presidential candidate. I, <laughs> I, I didn't follow afterwards, right? But I wouldn't say that it was because of her per se, but it was because of the quote. Mm-hmm. What was interesting was that that fee, that, that quote was often used uh, in many different contexts um, to talk about the strengths that we have within. and it is often misattributed to Nelson Mandela. right. And I, And I thought that was interesting. Because not only does the quote bring forth what I was trying to say throughout the book, but at the same time, that proves my whole point. That in life, we always think that big things are achieved by big people. Mm. And we even misattribute where the credit actually goes, right? We always attribute it to that charismatic, larger-than-life individual when it is actually the collective, ordinary people that has driven those changes. And and therefore, I thought it was very interesting to put it at the start.
0: So, you separated your book into two parts. Um, the first part is the power of the ordinary, and then the second part is the weakness of the powerful. Now, each part has a few names which you cover chapter by chapter. James, tell me a little bit about your approach and how you ended up choosing the names that you did.
1: Yeah, so the mechanism that I actually use was that like you said the two-part structure mm-hmm. uh, of dividing it into part one and part two and in each part they are isolated chapters of individual characters to illustrate um, a particular argument that i'm trying to make and all of these um, chapters ultimately would contribute to the overall central thesis that i'm trying to bring forth the reason why i put it that way was because that was the only way i could have written it because um if you put it into isolated chapters, uh, they will become smaller projects that are less daunting to actually write. Yeah. Um, so that, that's sort of like my cheat code, right? Uh, it's not, this book would never finish uh, because I would <laughs> never be able to write a very long book just from start to end. Um, in terms of finding the stories, the very interesting thing, of course, is that you could never really take a top-down approach of saying that, okay, I want these characters in my book and therefore I would just go interview them and hopefully they'll say yes, right? Mm -hmm. You can have a rough idea as to what you want to cover, who you want uh, to speak to, but uh, it very much depends on, you know, chance of whether they say yes and whether you are able to dig something much deeper than that. But I know that, you know, the the stories that I um, want to write about must be filtered for people who are, Ordinary from the outset, and they are put into extraordinary circumstances, and to show how they actually overcome those things and how society is shaped in turn. Because only then uh, my thesis would be proven. But of course, the challenge is that if these people are so ordinary and overlooked, like you, you would find it very hard to find much stories about them. Right. Right. So, um, therefore, I needed to dig very deep to look for stories that are Mm -hmm. underreported, or overlooked or or just something people are missing. So for instance, the Fami Reza chapter is super well-known and therefore the burden was to find something that uh, is not normally covered in the past. And therefore I took that approach uh, and of course it is luck that eventually these people that I covered, uh, they're also nice people, which is something that you can't actually
0: control. Absolutely. So, I want to get to the Fami Reza um, chapter a a little bit later on. In fact, I wish we could sit here for three hours and just unpack one chapter by one chapter because you have so many interesting tidbits about people. Like you said, even the people that we already know about. It's all these small, small things, um, small, small um, details about their life that you bring to the story that makes it so interesting. But okay, we can't cover every single chapter in this book. So, let's just look at some highlights, right? I want to start with... With um, the first name you highlighted in the book, which is Auntie Bursay or Anne Uy. Now, I think more than anyone else in the book, Auntie Bursay really tells the story of an ordinary person in the sense yeah. that she wasn't an activist, a journalist, a human rights lawyer, or anything in, in that realm, right? She was completely out of it. She was a teacher. Talk to me a little bit about what you found interesting and inspiring about Auntie Bursay.
1: Auntie Bursay's chapter was probably one of the main reasons that convinced me I needed to write a Mm. a book like that. So from the outset, I knew that I must write about Malaysian stories because I always think that Malaysian stories are compelling enough, interesting enough, strong enough that they could offer universal lessons. Because you know, I just couldn't find books like that on the bookshelves. Right, they are Mm. largely dominated by the Western world, and I knew that one of the most hopeful things that we've ever experienced was what happened in 2018 was this democratization of Malaysia against all odds, right? Uh, Against uh, all of the uh, things that were uh, difficult to overcome, right? Uh, Malapportionment, uh, corruption, um, gerrymandering, and so on. At the same time, this was one of the longest ruling uh, coalitions in the world. So knowing all of that, I knew that I needed to cover 2018. And that's when I read about this theory by this Harvard professor that talked about how there is a formula to what she thinks um, is what you need to do to actually overcome or defeat dictators or authoritarian regimes, right? Right. And what she said was that you need to have a certain percentage of the population protesting. Mm -hmm turning up to actually protest. And she was actually saying that if you have 1% of the population turning up, you have more than 60 plus percent of uh, a chance of actually overthrowing that dictator that has been ruling your country for a while. Mm -hmm. And when I went back, I I looked at the bursae protests and we actually achieved more than 1% in the last uh, bursae protests. Mm And for me, once again, that was such a cool insight of knowing that we were part of history, something historic, a a chapter in history books and not just a footnote, and we're not realizing, right? And there are many instances in Malaysia where that was the case. And, you know, when I knew I wanted to write about 2018, uh, I needed to find an angle, and I saw this iconic photo that some people compare to a Time Magazine uh, photo of the year. Mm-hmm. It is grainy. It is taken by this uh, freelance journalist. It has this frail and skinny uh, 60-plus-year-old um, uh, woman who has, like, white hair, um, t-shirt, and, and oversized trousers. And she was drenched from head to toe. Mm. And behind, you would see a sea of black, faceless um Um, black behind you and and you know that that's the police the fru the riot control police and so on and based on just how overwhelming that uh that instance of them coming forward you know that if they actually went after this woman at the front she stands no chance Hmm. right but of course in her hand she clutches on this white chrysanthemum flower which is a symbol for peace and love and I, I thought that I needed to chase that D because it was so interesting of knowing right. an instance of an unjust government, um, overwhelming, um, an ordinary person. And, You know, as I read more about uh, Auntie Berset and I, when I talked to her, people who've known her, I realized that she is a very interesting character, Mm -hmm. a person who hates attention, uh, who dances at shopping mall just to gain, uh, just to get more people to donate to the blind, uh, who loves cleaning, who always have a hot tea with the homeless people at her community. And I thought that all of that, her courage uh being the face of the protest how it inspired other people to turn up against fear that was an incredible story and I'm glad that you know that was the first story that I've managed to cover
0: and you know what you mentioned like you know how she loves to dance um you know to to collect donations um she loves to clean her house mm. um these are some of the details that the tiny details that I really love about your book right um What actually made me tear up reading this chapter in particular was the part where you talked about how you tried to interview her and she couldn't really remember much of all these brilliant things that she has um, done, you know, all the things that people look up to her uh, for have been inspired by her uh, because of her actions. So take me back to her house on that day. What was the interview with her like?
1: Yeah, so I'm very glad that you read everything because you're <laughs> able to capture details like that. That I think, uh, puts into perspective um sort of the reason for some of these stories, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to a house with the intention of, of course, interviewing her, mm. and I I got in touch with her children, and they gave me the address uh to this very, um, very modest flat in Stapa. Right, and when I went up, uh, you know, I realized that. Uh, there were uh, clothes that are just uh, along the hallway leading up to uh, her house. At the same time, you would also realize that there are some cash that are being put Hmm. uh, to the edges of um, the the railings and so on. And when I went to her house, um, you realize this is classic Auntie Berset, right? She loves cleaning her house multiple times (laughs) a day. Um, And she she cuts a lot of her trousers uh, to make it half length so that Um, She doesn't have to wash so much and they dry faster. (laughs) Uh, And she, of course, you know, as usual, she would um, cut her hair very short just to make sure that a lot of the hair doesn't fall on the floor. Just once again, right? (laughs) The the clean freak that she is, right? Right. So I went there to interview her and um, I I, I met her. But I was warned beforehand that she might not be the same auntie Berset as before, right? right? But I wasn't told too much. Mm -hmm. So I brought this food basket to her and, and then she, I, uh, I wanted to give it to her and she asked me, have you given it to your family? I said, uh, yes. Uh, have you given it to your neighbors? Have you given it to your friends? <laughs> because she doesn't take any of these things. She, right. she realizes that other people may need it more mm-hmm. and eventually, of course, the fruit basket was given away to her neighbors after I've left <laughs> um, and then there's just classic Auntie Berset, right? right? So she sat me down in this very modest uh, flat of hers. Um, and then she put this pillow behind uh, this sofa that I sat. And she sat in the middle of the entire living room with the fan above her. And I explained to her what I wanted to do with this book and therefore wanted to talk about, you know, what happened during Berset. And, you know, that, that interview was horrible because in in from the perspective of A person wanting to get some insights from the main subject, I got nothing. Because as I was talking and asking these questions, she had no recollection of what happened in the past. Hmm. And when I I said, okay, okay, then maybe I wouldn't um, talk so much about bursae, she said, no, no, no. Please continue talking about it. Please continue asking me questions because maybe I will recall something. Mm. Then I was talking about you know how she turned up to all subsequent protests, how she became the face of it, how she inspired others, and she 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 just mumbled to herself that I can't remember a single thing. Mm. And that that was the moment where it felt um very very uh, moving because mm. um, it also is you know, human nature that they, they lost memory no matter how great they were.
0: Right. And they
1: couldn't recall uh, anything at all. Right. So in the end, you know, she just roughly knows that I was writing something good about something, but she doesn't know what it is. <laughs> and of course a small frame who was shaking at different parts, just came over and gave me a hug. Mm. And she, she went to the kitchen and just made herself more tea. Um And, you know, so I realized that, okay, that there was no point in doing this anymore. I, I just showed her some videos of herself. And she asked me, why does your phone have so much videos of me? <laughs> I'm like, no, no, that's, that's the internet. Um, but as she was watching, she started to recognize who she was. And uh, she told me in Hokkien that she has like goosebumps all over her. Mm. And I, I found you know that to be a very important moment that I needed to write about. But but of course, you know, it's always very sad because even though you have written a book about her and I've given it to her, I don't think she would ever know that that book is about her, right? Right, Uh, So when you carry stories like that as an author, you only wish that you've represented their story well, Hmm. that even though they've lost their memory, uh, they, they would still be proud if they were able to record it one day.
0: On the show with me today is James Chai. He's the author of Sang Kanchil, a tale about how ordinary Malaysians defied the odds. We continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is James Chai. He's the author of A Tale About How Ordinary Malaysians Defied the Odds and we're talking about his book. So James, before we talk about some of the other personalities um, that you highlighted in the book, some of the very inspiring people, now I find it very interesting that you wrote all of these stories almost as if you were writing about fictional characters, and I, and I mean that as a compliment, right? Because there's a lot of um, life in the characters. Um, you highlight a lot of their quirks, um, and it reads at times almost like an adventure novel. Talk to me about um, why uh, about your process and why you went with this decision.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks so much, uh, Dashun, for saying that because that was the intention in writing something like that. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I didn't think that I have the chops to actually do it because what I know for a fact, right. Was that when I talk to my friends about politics and society, and I'm sure you know, this was you also care a lot mm-hmm. is that it's hard to get other friends to care. Right. Uh, and I, I remember having this one conversation with a friend, uh, on when I asked her, what what would make you care about politics more? And she said that, you know, if it's written in a storytelling format, then maybe I would pay more attention to it. And I knew that the device of storytelling is very important and you have to make it as much like what you said, like a novel as possible. Mm-hmm. And therefore I needed to go through all of the the drill of, you know, reading about story arcs, you know, the, right. the traditional um, heroes return, climax, those kind of stuff. Um, to try to fit into something like that. Hmm. But of course, because I'm writing about um, real-life stories that are like uh, truth-based, um, I needed to make sure that I I do much deeper research so that I have enough material to even do something like that, right? So, but ultimately, uh, after having done that, I needed to also prove um, a, a fundamental thesis. So this is not about just... Um, writing about stories to make people feel good, there is a certain degree of meta angle to it, right? Right. That uh, people feel like it is worth, um, like I, I've learned something from it. Absolutely. Um, And even for those portions, I needed to write it in a storytelling format so that it doesn't seem like it's just an academic paper uh, yes. for those parts, right? But of course, in the end, the hardest part is that after I've done Uh, All of this, uh, deep research, uh, interviews, as well as, you know, finding research theories to back all of this up. Um, The most challenging thing is actually combining all of this in a way that flows correctly. And and that's, you know, something that took a lot of rewriting. I I mean, you know, if I had more time, I wish I, I could have rewritten certain things more as well. But, you know, if I kept doing that, I think this book would never be published.
0: <laughs> I think that's mm. what many uh, authors uh, always feel, right? After the book yeah. is But they always want to keep changing and improving on it. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's that thing where a writer will never be 100% truly satisfied with what, what he mm. put out. But, you know, I, I want to talk to you, James, about the uh, Fami Reza chapter in the book, mostly because I'm personally hugely inspired by Fami Reza's courage. Mm. You know, I always say that if 10% of Malaysian had even 1% of the courage he has, we would mm-hmm. never, ever be under the boot of anyone. Now, mm-hmm. at least that is the Fami Reza we are all familiar re- with, right? One who would make a satirical PDRM membership card and chop yeah. it every time he gets called uh, for an investigation, which is a lot. Um, what I love about this chapter, though, James, is that you take us back to a time when Fahmy Reza wasn't this rock star, rebel, but a almost scared and powerless 17-year-old. Talk to me mm. a little bit about this.
1: So I wanted to write about his story because precisely for the same questions that you have, mm. which is like, how could a person become like that, right? <laughs> Out, after all the threats, the intimidation, the conviction, he still carried on much stronger than before. And like what you said, he, he's made it satire he imposed humor into all of these things that would scare um you know that would scare most people right uh but so i, I needed to know where did that courage actually come from and what i've f- you know what i actually found at that time was that i needed to know who he was as a person when he was much younger as, as a child as a teenager as an early adult um, and therefore I needed to write an origin story of his that is interesting enough um as as well as you know uh, how much his artwork, which is his main mm-hmm. tool uh, has actually ch- uh, changed as well as shaped the the minds of Malaysians when it comes to certain issues right So he was very reluctant at first because you know him being keen he doesn't think that he should be glorified and he doesn't want to be put on a pedestal. (laughs) But he could understand that ultimately there is value in people knowing his story, especially the more difficult parts. And I think the main thing that people would realize reading this uh, chapter was that his courage was not something he was born with. It was something that was honed through the years, especially when you survive near-death or near-miss experiences. Mm-hmm. And he he felt, I, I think, as though he earned that life for himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, combined with all of his uh, intellect, his understanding of what society needs to do, uh, I, I felt like that was a very compelling uh, story to write about.
0: What did you learn from him in terms of punk rock as a tool to fight oppression? Because reading the chapter, it seemed like you were very fascinated by the songs he listens to. And you were learning about the songs that he listens to during the process.
1: Yeah. So I think one thing that people would also realize uh, in this chapter was that Fami Reza is a very smart guy. Right. So he is this street Ace and went to like the top uni in US. He was a scholar, you know, those kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? In other words, there is a method to his madness. It's Mm -hmm. not as though he just, you know, randomly blurts things out. And I've learned, you know, multiple things from him, right? And he was the one who actually told me about something called the Streisand effect. Mm. In other words, he thinks that no government in this world would be able to successfully clamp down on censorship because he thinks that censorship uh, requires, uh, for you to even identify what to censor, you need to draw attention to it. And just by doing that, you actually defeat your initial aim of actually censoring it in the first place. Right. Right. So that was very interesting because that was one of the biggest influences, uh, to his life on how to actually carry on, which means that if let's say authorities are going to come after my artwork, I'm still going to win anyway because more attention is going to be drawn to it. Right. If they don't come after my artwork, then I push the envelope even if uh, more and more freedom for society. Right. So I found that to be a very, very interesting thing that I've learned from him at the same time. uh Also, you know, what he tells me about the activist role in society, which I think uh is super insightful. I haven't heard of this before. For the caricature that he makes himself sees himself as an activist right and he says the activist's role is to is to make the moderates look good in other words an activist would always have to be slightly more extreme slightly more unreasonable right so that you accept the politicians the policymakers who look more moderate right Mm -hmm. so i Thought that all of those are very, very uh, interesting insights. And of course, you know, his love for punk rock also has a lot of what he calls the punk ethics mm. that is uh, anti racism, anti oppression that he wraps around his life.
0: So, every single story in this book is about a specific individual, but the Gudwara Sahib Pataling Jaya chapter is about a few people, a temple, and a community. Talk to me about this chapter. So the GSPJ
1: uh, chapter, it is true. It is the only chapter that is a collection of people uh, rather than. Uh, one particular subject, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed to write it in that manner because there was no one at, at the temple who wants to own up this story to be the main <laughs> character. Because I, you know, I, I told you, I started writing about this at the early 2022. Right. And that was one month after one of the worst floods that we had in modern history mm-hmm. um, That that really affected almost 100,000 plus people in the country. And at that moment, uh, it was often repeated that there was this group of people who run their um, uh, rescue efforts very well. Uh, And when you go to their temple, you realize that they have kitchen, there's call centers, there's ration, there is distribution, there is uh, the people who go to the danger zone via trucks and high luxes all of these things are super well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. And it is very, very strange that how can this group of people do something so complicated, so well, and act as a stand-in for the government that uh, could not even match um, right. the rescue efforts by this group, right? Right. And when I went there, there was no one owning up to the story. It's almost like a speed dating thing. I had talked to each person almost for an hour. And then they would say, hey, no, you should talk to this other person, this other person. <laughs> then I realized that even the person who's supposed to be like the de facto leader of this whole thing, his name is Pavan, hmm. even he you know, doesn't think much of himself, right? He just thinks that he's just this person who cooks curry in the kitchen, right? <laughs> so, so for me, that was interesting. And when I found theories around the world about how the best organizations are leaderless and they are, you know, people with like dogged spirit, but with extreme humility of their place in all of the success. I realized that that fit very well. It is one of the easiest chapters to write because their story proves a point almost automatically. And I thought that it was counterintuitive to what we tell ourselves every day. Um, And and therefore, uh, I'm very glad that, you know, I I managed to cover it that way.
0: Now, as you mentioned, right, um, what's fascinating about the events that unfolded during the floods is, as you pointed out, uh, it's communities organising themselves um, to solve a problem without the state or the government or, or sort of a hierarchical approach. Why is this so important? Yeah, so I think the contrast like you've mentioned is
1: only there because um, of humility, I think, right? Mm. Humility plus the willpower that you have. And these two things have been proven in the past that they must coexist in order for success to be lasting, right? Right. So I think if you contrast this to the government, who at that time during the floods, they had all kinds of opening ceremonies. Uh, They were, you know, thinking about whether they themselves would be safe. In other words, the you know, as as expected, government and politicians would, you, you don't really associate them with like humility, right? And I think that explains the gap, right? They only came like three, four days later when right. most people are already uh, in trouble, starving. And uh, whereas this group that doesn't take that much about themselves has this, this incredible well-oiled machine to rescue uh, folks who are, in, who, who are in flooded zones, and um in, eventually they became so successful that even governments started donating directly to them uh, because they were much better in identifying where these places are and and actually uh, sending assistance right and i think you know this chapter would bring to light how difficult it actually is to actually organize a successful rescue effort there are many different factors that come in play and uh you know if you look at uh, the, the middle part of the chapter is almost a bit like a manual of how do you run successful rescue efforts, right? And mm-hmm. I think Malaysia, largely, in the past, we have a lot of occasions whereby the private sector had to step in and develop uh, certain uh, uh, capabilities for themselves to step in for a government that wasn't there right so we have development of ngos education and so on that has developed in the private sector quite well because we are accustomed to actually doing things on our own
0: so you know you interviewed so many people um in in the process of writing this book it's very ordinary people who did extraordinary things um for the country did you notice any common traits or characteristics shared by these um, sang canchils, so to speak, by the individuals that you profiled?
1: Yeah. So there are a few things that I feel were like very common across the board, Hmm. right? The first one was that uh, heroes don't like to think of themselves as heroes. Hmm. So there is a certain sense of like throughout the time of me even wanting to feature them. They were very, very reluctant and they think that, you know, Peter Kalang, one of the Uh, environmental activist he kept saying that are you sure you want to talk to me because I really don't think that there's much going on in my life at the same time he said that hey James could I confirm with you that this book is not just about me because if it's just about me I don't think anyone would read it it'd be too boring right so there's a lot of instances like that whereby Mm. none of them feel like they should be featured and therefore there were a lot of persuading Um, because they just simply don't think of themselves as heroes, right? Right. And the other thing that was very common in all of them is that heroes don't look a particular way, Right. right? And... We have, you know, a lot of research in the past have shown how bad we are at judging people. It only takes like 0.1 second for us to make up our mind whether this person is competent, likable, uh, whether this person is, is uh, supposed to be a leader and so on. And we misjudge a lot of people like that, mm-hmm. right? There was one chapter about Norsawani, uh, who is just like, you know, um, any other uh, Malay auntie, but she did. You know, a, a very courageous thing of actually recording what is an alleged uh, instance of corruption, and she persevered uh, regardless of how much um, attention as well as bullying that comes her way. And I think that is for me a, a good reminder that what shapes society, who shapes society, um, must be relooked because heroes don't look a particular way. And if anyone claims that they have made a huge change on their own chances are they're not as heroic as what they made themselves out to be.
0: Towards the end of the book, um, I really like this sentence that you wrote, which is, um, I have become a better person after hearing their stories. How did um, the process of writing this book um, change you? It gave me the biggest lesson in my life Mm. that
1: I used to be very enamored with larger-than-life biographies, uh, the great men that, that shaped society in the past. And most of them were men, just based on, you know, uh, patriarchy. Right. Um, but, and, and, you know, I've always, you know, had that view. And I think Malaysians also have that view. And that's why in every campaign by the opposition in the past is always efforts to save Malaysia because we're always looking for a savior to actually come and um, you know, solve all of this for us, right? It explains Mm -hmm. the rise of right-wing populism around the world. It's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. What this book has taught me was that it is, it is not necessarily true what we tell ourselves, right? These people like Marcus Yem, who's like this war photographer who ran into conflict Auntie Berse who does like community work that nobody knows of. Mm -hmm. And all of them who who does their work with integrity, even though no one's watching. It it made me realize that, you know, I I could really do more. And I'm not that good a person compared to them. Um, And therefore, you know, these things that they do, you can do it too. Uh, And it does have an effect in shaping society to make it slightly better than before.
0: So w- before we wrap this conversation what are the key takeaway lessons you hope Malaysians will take home with them after reading this book
1: I there is a s- final chapter that I've listed down mm-hmm. what I think were actionable things that Malaysians can do uh, including things like uh, get involved uh, in something right some kind of community work Uh, make good art, do little things with integrity. Those little lessons that I think uh, was picked up throughout uh, the chapter that, that we can act on. But I think as a Malaysian, you know, the constant struggle for us was always figuring out what's good about this country. Right. And it always goes back to food, right. which is like, OK, food, food is the number one thing. Right. Uh, other than this, it's very really hard for you to make that strong case that Malaysia is exceptional in this one thing. Right. And of course, it bothered me as a person who constantly tries to look for points of hope. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the best way to actually think about Malaysia is to think of Malaysia as an underdog. Mm-hmm. Right. We have the right ingredients to succeed, uh, to be uh, no longer overlooked. And all of these um, subjects that I have in my book, they are underdogs and they add to this overall picture of how do you look at Malaysia and what do you do um, from your end to make it work, right? So I I hope that Malaysians could take that away, that we are functioning in an underdog country that has a huge opportunity to actually making it work. Um, But, you know, it's not about waiting for any saviour to come along, Uh, Instead, it is you and I that actually add to that overall picture, that incremental change that really would transcend uh, generations uh, to come.
0: Absolutely. And when does the book go out on sale and where and how can people buy it?
1: So it'll be out on the thirty first of October. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very unfortunate that it was Halloween, right? But I always tell myself there's nothing scarier than having hope, right? Absolutely. Um, so thirty so first of October, it'll be at all major bookstores. Your Kinokuniya, MPH, Popular. It'll also be available to be purchased on Amazon. So if you want to buy, uh, um, uh, outside of um, Malaysia and Singapore, that's possible too. Uh, and Malaysia and Singapore will be the first countries to actually start having my book before the rest of Southeast Asia and outside of that Um, the good thing is that uh, there's also a Kindle version uh, Mm. for people who prefer to read it on e-book so I hope that uh, if you think that some of these messages resonate with you uh, maybe this book is something that you can consider um, for like a year-end gift
0: on that note James thank you so much for joining me today
1: thanks so much Ashwin
0: that was James Chai. He's the author of Sang Kanchel, a tale about how ordinary Malaysians defied the odds. If you missed any part of our conversation or would like to listen to other conversations like this, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, BFM Jotmai, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.